Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to a bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. The Buck Sexton Show is here, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, joining me. Great to have you, as always. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Let's hear your thoughts on all things. A lot to talk about today in the realm of immigration, and uh, we will certainly do that together. The debt ceiling fight looms as of Friday. There could be a a government shutdown, and we will also be joined later on in the show by Dan Bongino. You know Dan, I'm sure, from Fox News and his uh, his podcast, talking about the latest in the Russia collusion scandal as it involves the FBI and all that stuff. Uh, Emily Campagna will be joining us later on the show as well to talk about some of the just big legal headlines out there, Uh, uh, some of it having to do with the Me Too movement and others just that uh, we'll be discussing because they're uh, frightening but interesting cases. Uh, And your thoughts, of course, throughout the show as well. So uh, here's what I've got for this first hour. We are going to be getting into this Senate Judiciary Committee hearing today. Uh, that's coming up in just a second. And it was, wow, a lot of uh, a lot of disrespect shown by members of the Senate to uh, Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security. We will get there in just a moment. A lot of grandstanding, even some tears, as I understand it. Uh, then we'll also talk about the Trump administration deciding that they are going to skip the they're going to go right to the Supreme Court with the DACA challenge from that judge in California. Remember, I told you about this earlier in the week. A judge in California ruled that the president's discretion does not mean the president actually has discretion to not implement DACA as an executive branch program. So we'll get to that in a little bit as well. But in the meantime, or in the immediate future here, right now. Here's what's going on today. It was a lot of talk down on Capitol Hill from Democrat senators about Trump having a potty mouth and how terrible that is and trying to grandstand with Kirsten Nielsen as the uh, pinata for all of the different Democrat talking points and assaults against Trump that they could come up with. That was what the the main thrust was. Uh, You have Cory Booker, uh, Democrat Senator Cory Booker, who, well, I'll let him speak for himself, actually. You'll you'll I was going to say you'll want to hear this. Probably better way would be I think you have to hear this. Go, Go through the black belt in the south. When I'm in Atlanta, black churches in Newark, they're concerned about jihadist Islamic terrorism. We watched the Twin Towers from Newark go down. But since 9-11, 85 violent incidents, 73% were 
were with people that hold bigoted, hateful ideas about minorities. One American killed in Charleston, Virginia, and dozens injured. Nine Americans killed in a church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, by a white supremacist. An American killed and another wounded in Kansas after a white supremacist targeted them for their ethnicity, saying, get out of my country. Six, six Americans killed and four others wounded in Wisconsin, where white supremacists targeted individuals for their religion. The commander-in-chief, in an Oval Office meeting, referring to people from African countries and Haitians with the most vile and vulgar language. The language festers. When ignorance and bigotry is allied with power, it is a dangerous force in our country. Your silence and your amnesia is complicity. You know what's dangerous? When you have a sitting Democrat senator who runs through a list of white nationalist or white supremacist murders of the past and then immediately transitions into the sitting president of the United States to create a perception of these are similar things or these people are similar, their ideas are similar, to then just outright lie about what President Trump allegedly said in the old. No one says that he specifically attacked or or referred to people from any country. He was talking about countries, and we've already discussed here on the show, there is such a thing as a crappy country. And people that won't say it or that want to cry when someone brings it up are delusional. I invite any of you that are stumped by this one, my friends, or people try to entrap you in this discussion, say, okay, is North Korea a crappy country? Yes or no? If they say no, they're an idiot, right? And then you can say, but South Korea is not a crappy country. Has nothing to do with race or the individuals who live there. It is a it is a statement of the circumstances of the state, of the governing body, the regime, how it operates and how it runs. The Soviet Union was a crappy empire, really, but you could say a crappy country. Doesn't mean that people that were caught behind the Iron Curtain were bad people or were disparaging them. This concept is not that hard, but it is too appealing for Democrats to pretend that Trump is a vile racist. So they just lie. They just lie. And then they wonder why, when they continue on this line, more of us aren't, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? To go through a line of white supremacist murders, and then, as though there's just a comma in the sentence, start talking about Trump's rhetoric is despicable. It is utterly grotesque. And also, I would note, transitioning from the threat of jihadism to the real threat, which Cory Booker, Senator Booker, seems to be, or not seems to, was doing there. You see, the real threat, according to Democrats, is not jihad, even though they took down two towers, killed 3,000 people, 3,000 of our fellow Americans in one day. Change my life, change all of your lives. Many of you ended up serving in war zones because of what happened that day. But no, that's not the real threat, you see, in the Democrat. The real threat is white supremacists. Breitbart, Steve Bannon. What? Idiocy. It is idiocy. Masquerading as intellectualism, as intelligence, as sensitivity to what's going on in this country. To say something like that is just completely detached from reality.
what we have a a I would have to say multi-trillion dollar. I mean, if you add it up over time, multi-trillion dollar security apparatus in this country to stop the occasional white supremacist shooter. No. When you're about to get on an airplane, are you worried that somebody who's read too much Breitbart or 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 an actual white nationalist white supremacist website, Stormfront or one of these things, you're worried that one of them is going to be on the plane? No. You're worried a jihadist is going to be on the plane. We have the TSA because of jihad. Let's be honest. And to pretend that the the real threat in this country and to rattle off all of these different events as though we don't have and haven't had for years now mass casualty plots disrupted one after another after another. Tell me the last time you can think of off the top of your head a white supremacist in this country set off a bomb that just because of his stupidity didn't kill anybody but could have killed hundreds of people. I can do that with jihadists just here in New York City off the top of my head, and I can think of at least four or five that come to mind in my hometown. Not a lot of guys with you know, neo-Nazi tattoos come to mind because that is a rarity. They're despicable. They're scum. I hate them as much as anybody hates them. But let's not exaggerate the threat of white nationalism and white supremacy in this country to attack the president who has nothing to do with white supremacy. But that was what was going on there today. The sitting senator. And to speak to the Department of Homeland Security secretary in that way, for, you know, I, at some point I want to ask, what has she done? I'll also note, do you see any feminists out there, any of the, the so-called feminists in the Democrat media who are saying, whoa, you know, a lot of mansplaining there from, from Cory Booker, a lot of disrespect sh- uh, shown. She didn't do anything. And then at the end he says she's complicit in all that. So he think about what he did there. He goes on a run-on sentence, basically, of white nationalist murderers and hate crimes Oh, Donald Trump says stuff that they would like, and you're just as bad, DHS Secretary Nielsen. Look, we can't we can't have a serious conversation with Democrats if this is how they're going to act, right? We can't engage them with ideas if they're going to respond with slanders and smears and distortions. It was quite a spectacle today. It was quite a spectacle indeed. Cory Booker wasn't done, I would note. Uh, Cory Booker wasn't finished. I hurt. When Dick Durbin called me, I had tears of rage when I heard about this experience in that meeting. And for you not to feel that hurt and that pain and to dismiss some of the questions of my colleagues, saying I've already answered that line of questions when tens of millions of Americans are hurting right now because of what they're worried about what happened in the White House. That's unacceptable to me. There are threats in this country. People plotting. I receive enough death threats to know the reality. Kamala receives enough death threats to know the reality. Maisie receives enough death threats to know the reality. And I've got a president of the United States whose office I respect, who talks about the country's origins of my fellow citizens in the most despicable of manner. You don't remember. You can't remember the words of your commander in chief. I find that unacceptable. Mr. Chairman, I'm grateful to be on this committee. I'm more than ever today happy I'm here. Thank you. Wow. He was crying, huh? Not, not exactly the uh, most reasonable response to those news stories from last week, but I would, I would want to note here that he goes from 
I'm sad because or crying because of what Trump allegedly said or remember when I say allegedly, I'm not trying to say that he didn't say something about I'm sure he said that there were crappy countries, but they keep trying to adjust the language so that it specifically antagonizes and attacks individuals. And he just didn't do that. And then when we say, well, actually, he didn't say this word. He said that word. They say, oh, well, now you're parsing. Well, their whole argument is that the words were so horrible. Oh, my gosh, I'm crying. But notice the same trick deployed as before by Senator Booker. He went in that previous soundbite from white supremacist murderers to Trump and just in the blink of an eye attached them. Almost explicitly said Trump's rhetoric is an endorsement of white supremacist murder. I mean, that was what he was. That was what the intent was of that little soliloquy that or monologue, not a soliloquy. And then he goes from I'm sad to people in this country get death threats. To which I would want to respond, you know, a lot of conservatives I know in media get death threats. You know, you, you want to get a death threat? Be a conservative who says that a man who says he's a woman is not actually a woman. You'll get death threats. Trust me. You want to get death threats? Talk about what really is going on with radical Islam around the world and what needs to be done about it. You'll get death threats. Just the, the hysterics here. I mean, the, the, the weepiness of Senator Booker based on what? Tens of millions of Americans are... Yeah, tens of millions of Americans don't like the president. Tens of millions of Americans didn't like the previous president. It's America. Like, we're allowed to not like the president. People can cry if they want to. I think that's a little extreme. I wouldn't cry about what I heard the president said in the Oval Office, maybe, about some people. I mean, or I shouldn't see. I, I just made the mistake. Some places. Uh, but nonetheless, this is what a, you would think, routine or relatively routine hearing with the Senate Judiciary Committee was turned into today. It was just an opportunity for Trump bashing and grandstanding. And if there is such a thing as mansplaining, a lot of mansplaining to, uh, which I don't think there is, but to Kirsten Nielsen. And we got a real sense of the Democrat playbook for DACA, all the DACA negotiations going forward, which is just, if you don't support DACA, you're racist. Doesn't matter if you're Latino and you don't support DACA. Doesn't matter if you're a minority and you don't support DACA. And it doesn't matter if you're just an American who likes the rule of law and does not believe a massive amnesty is in the best interest of this country. You're a racist. That's the argument. And they wonder why. We don't care what they I don't care about this story about Trump and an adult film star 15 years ago that they're kind of sort of maybe running on some news sites here and there. I, I don't care. I just don't. Because I got bigger problems to deal with, like the fact that Democrats have collectively lost their mind. All right, we're going to hit a quick break here. We got much more on this as well as where this DACA debt ceiling fight is going. So stay right there. So the debt ceiling could be a very straightforward situation or it could get really messy, right? In the past, it has been standard practice for Congress to just say, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll deal with the debt ceiling. Well, we'll raise it and we'll deal with this whole continued spending beyond our means issue another time. This time around, though, we're talking about DACA a lot. Now, 
let's all be quite clear. DACA doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the debt ceiling. Democrats have made DACA and the debt ceiling two issues that are going together right now, but Democrats are in the minority. So I just want to go on record with you all and say that if the Republicans go for a bad deal to get the debt ceiling raised, if they allow any amnesty, for example, any permanence to DACA or anything else, and don't get in return permanent border security measures, i.e. a wall, it's not that they were it's not that the Republicans were forced into a bad deal, which I'm sure they will say. It's because they wanted the bad deal. Do not trust Republicans on immigration. Some of them are good. A lot of them are fakers. A lot of them are all about talking tough on immigration when they need donations and need to win elections. And then when it comes time to legislation, they want some nice press from The New York Times. This was a very telling exchange from this hearing today between Dick Durbin, the guy who supposedly heard the uh, crap hole countries comment, and the DHS secretary that we we're just talking about a second ago, Kristen Nielsen. To put the to put the entire burden of immigration reform on the shoulders of these DACA recipients is fundamentally unfair, not practical, and jeopardizes their future and their lives. What we're trying to do is an honest, bipartisan approach to deal with the first phase of this, and you have rejected it. I thank you for your passion. I hope you understand mine. I cannot agree to a deal that does not give the tools and resources to the men and women of Department of Homeland Security to do the job you've asked them to do. We gave you every penny you You, asked for. Sir, it's not the pennies. It's closing the loopholes. Can we cut back on some of this money because we can sure use it? (laughs) We need the wall, too. The wall works. As you know, it's part of border security. Notice how Dick Durbin's like, yeah, we're giving you all the money you want although not money for a wall. But just giving money to a bureaucracy that doesn't have the political will or the political buy-in from the Congress to get it done and do what they have to do with border security is not enough. You can throw as much money as you want at Immigrations and Customs Enforcement or Border Patrol, but if they're not allowed to enforce the law, it doesn't matter. Democrats love this, though. Yeah, sure. You know, more OT for for the bureaucrats in the federal system that aren't out there on the front lines trying to keep the border safe and trying to enforce U.S. law. You know, more money for them, maybe. Who cares? More money for facilities that just allow people to come into the country, hang out for a bit. Then they get released. They're supposed to show up and go for a uh, court date. But here's what happens with that. What does how many do you bring to court within 20 days? Uh, not not enough. I don't have that figure we can get back. So, but what we what we do find is that 90 percent of those released never show up for court. Ninety percent. They just disappear. Yes, ma'am. If you don't show up to court, by the way, for a speeding ticket, you're going to get in trouble. You do a couple of those. They're going to put out a warrant for your arrest. Right. If you just don't show up, don't pay. Oh, but illegal immigrants, illegal aliens, they live under a different set of laws. And here's the fascinating thing, and this is what Democrats don't want you to figure out. It's better than the one you do because they get special legal exemptions.
He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. No, I think he's worried that Democrats' unwillingness to actually put the country ahead of their party is what's stalling things from moving forward, whether it's the budget or whether it's a deal on DACA. Democrats are definitely using the Thursday comments uh, as leverage. Schumer said on Colbert last night, Mr. I don't think President, they're using it as show- leverage. I think they're using it as an excuse uh, not to help this president get something accomplished, which I think is a sad day for our country that they're willing uh, to throw away the progress and negotiations and um, not make big steps that we need to happen, whether it's funding our military, supporting our government, or uh, making a deal in DACA, which they say is a huge priority and something they want to do. The president brought them all here, had a very candid conversation, which you guys were all witness to, uh, on getting that done and laid out things that all of these individuals have voted for. It seems absolutely hypocritical that now, all of a sudden, they don't want uh, border security, they don't want merit-based immigration system when they've supported it, voted for it, and spoken about it many times in the past. Uh, Look, everybody wants the same thing here. It seems like it should be pretty simple. Hopefully, Democrats will stop playing politics and start governing and getting their job done. Some very good stuff from Sarah Huckabee Sanders there, but I'm not sure about that point where she says everybody wants the same thing here. I, I, I guess she was meant, uh, you know, the same thing as in what's best for the country and for the government to be funded. But not everybody wants the same thing on immigration. That much should be quite clear at this point in time. And I have I have a lot of concerns about where this is all going. Let me just give you one version of what DACA would really mean based on how immigration enforcement in particular has functioned for the last, oh, 20 or 30 years or so. Let's say, and without even getting into the negotiating aspects of this or the lack of negotiating skills that would be on display from Republicans if, in fact, they... If, if all that comes out of this is DACA, more more border security money, and then the debt ceiling gets raised, which remember, uh, uh, which remember we means that we're raising the amount of money we can borrow, right? It's like okay, you borrowed a million dollars against your home, or let's say you borrowed a hundred thousand dollars against your home. Now you're going to borrow two hundred, then you're going to borrow three hundred, then you're going to borrow four hundred. Raising the debt ceiling is raising the credit limit that we have to run up debts. It's actually not a good thing that we have to keep doing here. It's the statutory borrowing limit of the United States government. And we're just like, yeah, you know, whatever. Put it on the, put it on my tab. Round it to kill on me, everybody. Put it on my tab. That's what's going on. At a fed, that's Uncle Sam there after a few rounds of perhaps uh, Milagro Reposado. And that's what's going on. We're just increasing the amount of money that we spend. But let me just focus in for a moment on what would happen. I mean, what the, what the mechanics would be. Let's say, and I was a little worried. I mean, here's what Lindsey Graham said earlier. Play that, please. This has turned into a S show, and we need to get back to being a great country where Democrats and Republicans have worked together to do something that we should have done years ago. To the 700,000 young people, some young, some older, uh, we're not going to leave you behind. I don't know how this movie ends, but you're going to be taken care of. What the heck does that mean? I mean, it sounds like he's promising that there'll be amnesty for DACA. Right? That's what it, it sounds like he's promising no matter what. 
And I got to think, okay, well, wall plus something for DACA is a conversation I'm willing to have, although I think it's not as good as, you know, I, I'm not the... I'm not the cheerleading section here for all things the GOP does. I have I have my concerns and I will air them and continue to on this show. But Lindsey Graham saying that they will not be left behind, they'll be taken care of, to me indicates that you're going to have a permanent DACA solution, which means that they are permanent residents of this country. They they are effectively, for all intents and purposes, green card holders, and maybe even they got a path to, a pathway to citizenship after that. So here you got a, a GOP senator who is promising that DACA is going to end up with good stuff for the people covered by DACA right now. Here's what they're not telling you about this, and this is where my concerns come in. DACA is going to only increase the political influence of the pro-amnesty factions in the Democrat Party and the Republican Party and across the board. And one amnesty is likely to lead to other amnesties. DAPA will not be far behind. I've already seen it. The very emotionally uh, emotionally difficult to watch. Oh, they're separating families. This guy was here for 30 years. He's separating from his kids and all this. I also want to know, by the way, people who are here illegally, are they not filing income taxes? Because that's a crime. And you might say, well, Buck, who cares? And maybe they don't make enough, enough money to even pay federal income taxes. But uh I know that if you or I were doing that, it would be a big problem. Oh, he's a tax cheat. You know, he's a tax cheat. But if you're an illegal, well, you know, it's not your fault that you're just not paying any income tax hmm. or not filing income taxes. But I, I digress. I don't know. I don't know if, if some of these illegals are filing or not. I mean, it depends on the specific individual. But I just know that, again, different set of laws, right? Document fraud, Social Security card fraud. Illegals don't get prosecuted for that. You see, it's not their fault that they're breaking the law. You don't have that luxury, though. You forge a signature, you use fake federal documents, you're, you're going to get in trouble. It's not good. Because uh, there's a thing called the law that you would be breaking. But he, here's how DACA actually plays out. It turns into DAPA right after that. So you'll be told, oh, we can't break up these families. I mean, we just made 700,000 people permanent residents of the United States. We and, and the Democrat Party is going to get full credit for that, meaning that uh, those DACA recipients, you can assume, are going to vote 80 percent plus Democrat. And oh, by the way, what about their parents, the ones who brought them here illegally? You can't separate those families. Do you think at that point you're going to win the argument that, oh, yeah, actually, no, now we're drawing the line. Now we're going to say it's time to enforce the law. No, the 700,000 quickly becomes three or four million. Right. Oh, wait. But what else comes along with DACA? There will be a surge of immigrants, illegal aliens at the border. There will be a surge of people who come into the country while they can, assuming whether border security improves a little bit under Trump going forward or not. It's not going to be perfect. Or there'll be a lot of visa overstays. And here's how that will go. People say, oh, Buck, no, there's all these rules. You see, there's these rules where you got to pay back taxes and you got to prove your you know residency in these years and and you had no idea and it's not your fault it's your parents and we're not going to punish them and you know if your parents stole money and they bought a house with it you know we would take it from you and but in this case you know cuz it's daca laws don't apply here's how it actually goes 
anybody after if the amnesty becomes a thing, if it becomes permanent, they pass a law that says, yes, DACA is now if you are covered under the DACA program, you are going to be a permanent resident of the United States legally, never leaving, which is the only I don't know how else you can talk about what Lindsey Graham was saying. I don't know how else you could describe or analyze those comments. If that's the case, then guess what happens? You got a lot of people who are like, wait a second. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I was brought in the country as well. And I didn't believe that the federal government wouldn't target me. So I didn't sign up for DACA, but I want to sign up for DACA now. And you may say to me, oh, no, Buck, the rules don't allow for that. Oh, really? We've seen what some judges in this country have been doing recently. Do you really think that anyone who goes before an immigration judge in most jurisdictions who's roughly of the age where they could be covered by DACA and they say, you know, uh, I, I, my parents brought me here against my will. Where are your documents to prove it? Oh, well, I'm undocumented, so I can't prove it. How many immigration judges are going to say, no, sorry, you got to go? There'll be no enforcement. The problem will just get a whole lot worse, It'll be much bigger. I had an immigration, former immigration judge on the show, what was it, last week, saying there's an enormous immigration, and we're talking about immigration cases, it's primarily whether people are going to get deported or not, enormous backlog. It would take years and years to go through the one they already have. If you pass an amnesty for DACA, guess what happens? Anybody who wants to jam up the courts for eternity is going to claim some protection of the DACA status. It doesn't matter how flimsy. It doesn't. It, all that matters is that there'll be a pretext to get in front of a judge and the judge will have a pretext to say, yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. You should be covered under DACA. It's not fair. You have an equal protection claim. Oh, but they're not U.S. citizens. None of them are U.S. citizens, right? By definition, they're not U.S. citizens. So if some if some of them are being treated like U.S. citizens and giving, well, at least being treated like permanent residents, being given all the rights except for voting of citizens, why can't the, anyone else who shows up and says, yeah, you know, I was here. And oh, by the way, you know, what about people that came who were visa overstays? We're primarily focused on uh, Mexico and Latin America when we're talking about DACA. But what about other folks who say, no, I mean, I was brought here. You know, I was really young and we were visa overstays, but we should be covered, too. I mean, you see, it just it will spiral. There'll be more and more. And we're going to have the political will to enforce this later on. If you go back and you read about how Reagan's. Yeah, it was Reagan. And he look. I'm not beating up on the great man. I'm just saying, if you go back, because he admitted that it was a mistake because they lied to him. The last time we had a mass amnesty, 1986, they made all of these rules and regulations. You had to speak English. You had to pay back taxes. And if you didn't meet the requirements, you had to go. It was a joke. None of that stuff was enforced. All that happened was you had a few million people who were rewarded for being in the country illegally. And then you had additional millions who were like, I might as well go to America because eventually they're just going to legalize me. I go through that process. And oh, by the way, why file taxes or have to deal with any of that junk and paperwork? I can just work off the books, work for cash, go access federal, uh, you know, federal resources, go into emergency rooms when I want, etc. I mean, that's the reality of all this. So don't be lulled into the sense of, oh, well, you know, they're going to get the Republicans are going to get a great deal for DACA. I think that if they do anything with DACA, we're all going to find out, wow, this was this was a much heftier price tag than was advertised. 
And that's why you got to have a wall and a lot more. And that Democrats are balking at a wall just goes to show you that they're not negotiating here. They're dictating. The plan is not to make Republicans agree on some middle ground here. The plan is to just browbeat the Republicans into submission, to just harangue them until they can't take it anymore. And, you know, then Lindsey Graham and others will say, yeah, you know, we got to do what we got to do. Let's keep DACA and we'll move on. We'll fight the fights about the wall and E-Verify and chain migration another day. I'm going to be very unhappy with this GOP if that's what happens. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned. Then again, there's also the possibility, which is probably the biggest one, that we all talk about DACA all week. DACA, 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 right? Lots of DACA. And then nothing happens because they go, yeah, let's just raise the debt ceiling and fight another day on all this stuff. So that could happen too. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. What do you think? Am I misreading this? Am I seeing it quite clearly? You agree, disagree, any of that? And uh, if you have thoughts, by the way, on Shields High, the uh, I think we broke into like iTunes top 200 with the first episode. I'm hoping we can break into the iTunes top 100 of all podcasts with the uh, second episode, but maybe that's a little grandiose. I think we broke 200 in the first episode, though, which is for a brand new podcast as a history podcast. Pretty cool. Shields High on iTunes. You will want to check that out. Uh, and also give me a call because lines are lit. Let's get into it. I'll be right back. Tim in Mississippi, welcome to Freedom Hunt, buddy. Hey, it. Listen, a couple of things, and, I, and I've, I've had the good fortune of talking to you on, on a number of occasions, and, and every time I do, I tell you that I refer to myself as a re- recovering Republican. Lindsey Graham and Jeff Flake, and, and I mean, I could go on and on and on, McConnell and, and, and 90% of all of those guys, they, I'm not going to say they're immoral, but they are amoral. They do not have a moral compass. They want to protect the DACA kids. We've got kids in the inner cities. We've got kids in Appalachia that were born here, whose whose families have been here for generations, whose lives are far worse than the DACA kids. And I am so sick and tired of hearing Lindsey Graham talk about we've got to do something to protect the DACA kids. The hell we do. It's unfortunate for them. It's tough. Kids that are born to, to crack-addicted mothers, that's tough, too. It's life. Until we take care of the Americans, Lindsey Graham and his ilk, we need to vote them out of office. Lindsey Graham is unaffected by immigration, completely unaffected. The people who live in D.C. And, and work on Capitol Hill, they are oblivious to the rest of the world. Or, well, actually, they, they like they like illegal immigration, Tim, because, one, the donor class, a lot of uh, businessmen employ illegals, you know, and and I'm talking big business, and they write checks to these D.C. politicians. And also, uh, the, the services industry, particularly, you know, as we all know, a lot of cleaning is done by illegals, and, and D.C. likes that. A lot of the D.C. kind of upper middle class and above loves to have cheap labor. Well, well, of course they do, and that's really what's wrong with with our politics today. Is is the money that's involved? The the Republicans, both parties, they will they would screw their grandmother if it meant that they could get that next donation that would get them elected again. And and it's just America needs to stand up and say enough is enough. 
We'll have to see, Tim. I, look, I agree with you. These politicians, you can't. I don't trust Lindsey Graham at all. I know some people listen to the show like him, but I don't. Tim, thank you very much for your call from Mississippi. Josh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What's up, Josh? How you doing, Buck? I'm good. Thank you for the call. Hey, I was just curious. Where were the uh, conservative judges whenever Obama did the DACA thing in the first place? Well, I will tell so you that actually a, a judge down in, since you're asking, a judge down in, I believe it was Texas, I think it was the Fifth Circuit, but don't quote me on that, was the one who stopped the DAPA, which is the Deferred Action for the Parents of Arrivals, because people forget this, Josh. Home, and by the way, I'm not trying to negate your question. It just raises an interesting, an interesting point from recent history. Homeland Security under Obama was going to give work authorization permits and, ID, and IDs. They were already getting ready to print them for DAPA based on executive say-so. No congressional action. And a federal judge was like, you guys can't do that. That's not enforcement. That's just giving people, you know, that's the federal government just appropriating property and giving it to people. But the conservative judges just, for the most part, just go along with it. It's the liberals that. Well, all it takes is one. All it takes is one liberal judge, Josh, to tell the president that the policy is null and void, right? Whereas conservative judges, because they actually have an attachment to something called the law, are like, "Well, I may not like this, but I'm not going to stop it." Liberal judges operate from a place of, "I don't like that thing, and I want people to like me in whatever area I'm the judge, whatever blue area I'm the judge." So I'm just going to stop right. it. That's what ends up happening. But it's frustrating, man. I, I hear you. It's very frustrating. Yeah, there's one more thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, they've been mentioning lately that they don't hear anything about Mexico paying for the wall. You know, they've been talking about that. We oh, well, that actually got asked today on, on – uh, are you asking me? Because that was raised by uh, Kirsten Nielsen, or they asked her, and she said she doesn't know. But, look, we got to get a wall before we know how we're – I mean, let's get the authorization for the wall before we pay for the wall. That doesn't sound great, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Let's get the wall first and foremost. Josh, I appreciate your call. I didn't mean to rush you off there, my friend, but we're in a hard break here in a second. More on immigration coming up, my friends. And also, what is this all about? We know, because I said it right away, this whole going after Trump thing. We'll talk about that. Stay with me. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We are going to discuss the Supreme Court review pending of Trump's refusal to go along with Obama's DACA decision. You see, Obama had discretion on DACA, or at least that was what was uh, decided at the time by the government. And now Trump's like, no, I'm not going to do that thing that I have discretion over. And a federal judge has come along and said, no, actually, you don't have discretion. You got to do what Obama did. But isn't that not discretion? And does a judge have the right to tell the president that? Uh, the Supreme Court will, I am sure, side with, well, I will get to that in just a few minutes. And then plus some uh, interesting exchanges from uh, earlier today. We will get into from the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, which got all the headlines, um, and we'll get into that. But the debt ceiling and the government shutdown fight, this is big right now. This is what's forcing the discussion over DACA. And you had uh, <laughs> Lindsey Graham getting a lot of play on the show tonight. Lindsey Graham last hour, Lindsey Graham this hour. Here's what he said about a possible shutdown. 
we'll get to the bottom of this, but here's what's going to matter. How does it end? How does it end? Does it end with the government shutting down? Um, we should all be kicked out if that happens. Does it end with the 700,000 kids uh, being thrown to the wolves? No. Does it end without any uh, effort to secure the border? No. So it's not going to end uh, poorly. It's going to end well. And let me tell you why it will. The public is demanding for us to get our act together up here. So what does that mean, Lindsay? I mean, that was a great little speech, right? So what does that mean? It's not going to be all these bad things. It's going to be good. How? Eh, let's not get bogged down in the specifics. That was a fun speech he gave, right? Why worry about the fact that he is quite clearly on the side of amnesty for DACA and that we're in a situation now where Democrats do not have the House, do not have the Senate, do not have the White House. Those are all in Republican hands, Republican majorities in the legislative branch. Republican sits at uh, sits in the White House. And yet Democrats are making demands. Republicans may concede, and we'd have to ask why. And if they do, I'm telling you, it's not because of anything other than that's the decision that they've made because they wanted to do it. If they go for a shutdown, understand that they will blame that they're going to push a narrative that a shutdown of the government over DACA is the fault of Republicans because that's how much Democrats think they have won the argument over DACA. And Republicans who are always inept when it comes to making the case for their side of this argument are going to quickly, I think, get a little weak need and say, okay, you know, fine, we shut down the government, but the polls look bad for us on this. So, sure, DACA, everyone covered under DACA is now covered under DACA again. And then we have to wonder, is it going to be permanent? They were saying it would be permanent. But notice how this is a an unfortunate commonplace reality with Republicans, which is that they go in with a winning hand here, Right. They have the majority. They're supposed to be setting the legislative agenda for the government. And if the government shuts down because Democrats are demanding something for non-citizens. That's what the Republicans should be shouting from the rooftops. The Democrat Party right now is willing to shut down the federal government or force a shutdown of the federal government because they want something for non-citizens of the United States. They want something for people who are not even technically allowed to be in the United States. That is their number one priority. Number one priority. Think of all the things about which right now we could be debating you know, health care and this, that. How many people even know that the Defense Department is for the first time, I think, in history going to be audited? How many people realize it's going to cost uh, an enormous sum of money? I think, uh, was it hundreds of millions? Hundreds of millions of dollars just to do an audit of the of the Defense Department. It's going to take years. And everyone's like, oh, gosh, you mean we have to audit the DOD? Yeah, that might be a good idea. Spending most of our discretionary spending outside of entitlements goes to defense. Maybe we should know what we're spending money on, right? Think about that. We don't, we've never done an audit. But instead of that, Democrats, their number one priority of this Democrat uh, Congress, Democrat minority, is to shut down whatever services we'll lose, you know, national parks. I mean, you know, remember the last time, I mean, the part of the problem was with Obama in charge, 
the way the government did this whole shutdown was the, quote, fireman first strategy. Right. If you're not familiar with the fireman first strategy, it means that any time a local government and it's a great way to understand how these things play out. Whenever a local government gets a budget cut, they go, oh, oh, got to get rid of some of our firemen now. Sorry. You know, I I guess we've got, you know, two fire engines and we're just going to be down to a guy driving a pickup truck with a big jug of Gatorade in the back. Firemen first. Right. Oh, we can't do that. We can't cut the budget because we're not going to firemen anymore. Well, what about the, you know, 300 administer- administrative assistants making an average of $95,000 a year who work in City Hall? <laughs> firemen. We're talking about firemen here, sir. You see? That's the game that they play. And with the last shutdown, what they did was they made sure that, you know, World War II veterans or Vietnam veterans who were going to memorials, oh, no, I'm not allowed to go see them. National parks closed down. I mean, they made sure that it was as heavy-handed as possible. In fact, and this should not be forgotten, this is one of those great little Obama legacy moments that I wish I could have more opportunities to remind everybody of. The Obama administration actively shut down, quote, monuments. In, and what I mean by that is there were open areas where you could just walk and, like, go see a war memorial or go see a, a monument, whatever. And they set up barricades and had people who are in the government's employ, show up and say, sorry, it's closed. You can't be here. Yeah. So, like I said, fireman first strategy. Meant to be as as onerous and difficult and annoying as possible. Meanwhile, as you know, everyone that you're like, oh, gosh, if they didn't show up to work, we'd be in trouble. They're they're mandatory employees, right? They're essential personnel. They, They go to work no matter what. It doesn't change. It's not like... The uh, the FBI stops chasing mobsters and kidnappers and everything because there's a government shutdown. It just means that some parts of the government would go into a, a hibernation mode that would last for a few days. You know what? It might be a great thing. Those of you who have some familiarity with the certain period in American history remember that the government used to meet for like a few months of the year. And they were out of there because D.C. in the summer was a malarial, yellow fever-infested swamp. So they're like, get me out of here. I don't want any of that. And so the government was shut down for a long time. Yeah, the people could still send postal messages. There were still constables walking around with muskets or whatever. But the point is, we didn't have to have our federal leviathan operating 24-7 and at all times. But we've been, we've been fed this storyline that if there's a shutdown going to be dogs and cats living together mass hysteria it's going to be pandemonium in the streets it's going to be like that last scene from season two of the strain where the nuke actually finally goes off and it's nuclear winter and the zombies are eating everybody that's not going to happen it really would it really would be okay if there was a government shutdown but let and back in the 90s and for those of you who were are uh history i was going to history buffs but you know that's not that far ago that's not that long ago but uh, you remember that after the government shut down with the Gingrich Congress, they actually reformed welfare and got some stuff done. You know, so it can lead to positive outcomes. We shouldn't be. The media has terrified us. Oh, my gosh, the government shut down. And they've also convinced enough Americans, not all of us, but enough of us that it's always Republicans fault that this has now become a tool that only Democrats get to use. It is about the narrative and it's about perception. and They have to. We have to do a better job, and it's incumbent upon me as well, right? Everybody on the on the right in media needs to explain what this would really mean. 
But also, I would like that to be hammered home. Democrats are willing to shut down the federal government on behalf of people who are not even allowed to be in the country. It is one line, and I think it's pretty potent. I think that gets across what's what's happening here. And that's the ground on which they should be forced to debate and to argue the merits of DACA or not. Instead, it just turned into Trump is uh, Trump is going to get called a racist and everyone's going to get called a racist until they agree to go with DACA. We got Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer said that. Play it. His comments over and over and over again can be described as nothing but racist and obnoxious. I have a challenge for Donald Trump, okay? Actions speak louder than words. You want to begin, just begin that long road back to proving you're not a racist, you're not bigoted. Support the bipartisan compromise that three Republicans and three Democrats have put on the floor, everyone gave, and get the dreamers safety here in America. That's what he should do. If this bill doesn't become law, there'll only be one thing standing in the way, and that's Donald Trump and his intransigence. See what Chuck Schumer just did there? He made it very clear, as explicit as possible, that the public pressure on this is supposed to be about whether or not you're a racist, whether or not Donald Trump is a racist. And if he were, and the Republicans were to go forward with DACA, it's almost like a papal indulgence, right? Remember indulgences way back in the day, medieval times, medieval period. You could uh, give some money. You know, you go to your local priest or probably your bishop. You're like, hey, bishop, I did some bad stuff. He's like, well, you know, we're, we're a little light in the collection uh, plate this week. You know, maybe you, you give us some stuff and all of a sudden, you know, all your sins are forgiven. It's in a, this would be a, a, a papal indulgence courtesy of Chuck Schumer. Yeah, give us DACA and you're not a racist anymore. That's the promise. That's the deal that they're offering here. That is their version of a deal. There's not going to be a wall. There's not going to be E-Verify. There's not going to be enforcement. Their deal is we'll stop calling you a racist for like a day if you sign DACA into, you know, whatever. If you make a DACA, if the Republicans give a DACA extension and then probably get a permanence to it, I mean, who knows? Who knows? They don't know what they're going to do. But something like that. All right, I I got a couple of other just things I want to throw in there that were kind of amusing from earlier today, and I see we got a bunch of folks calling in. Do you think that Republicans would bear the full brunt of the blame? Well, that's not the right way to ask the question. Would they? Would a majority of Americans blame Republicans no matter what if there's a government shutdown? And what should Republicans do about this? I'm wondering what you think about that, too. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. And we'll be right back. So there was one moment in the hearing earlier today that I have to say, even I thought, uh, I'm not I'm not sure that's really the way I would have gone with that answer. Uh, Kirsten, Kirsten Nielsen was asked about the composition of Norway. I just want you to pay attention to what, you know, what she had to say here. Go for it. He wanted more people from Norway. Being from Norway is not a skill. And with the standard of living in Norway better than ours, you're not going to have too many people from there. What does he mean when he says he wants more immigrants from Norway? I don't believe he said that specifically. What he was saying was he was using Norway as an example of a country that is, uh, 
what he was specifically referring to is the prime minister telling him that the people of Norway work very hard. Uh, and so what he was referencing is, from a merit-based perspective, we'd like to have those with skills who can assimilate and contribute to the United States, moving away from country quotas and to an individual merit-based system. Oh, wait, we didn't have the question about... Uh... Norway is a oh, predominantly white country, isn't it? I'm, I, I actually do not know that, sir, but I imagine that is the case. Okay. <laughs> Okay, a few things here. First of all, so first of all, Leahy, there's there you go. That's Senator Leahy there. President's a giant racist, and he's a racist. Um, but <laughs> it's one thing to not know that Norway's majority white when you're the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I, look, I think she just said no because she was kind of in. She was on the defensive and whatever. <laughs> There's no way she doesn't actually know that uh, Norway. You know, this is like someone saying, "Well, is, is Sweden like mostly a white country?" Uh, but but even more than that, her name is Kirsten Nielsen, and if you look at the spelling of it, I mean, I, I think she has some relatives named like Sven Sven Olafsson, and I would assume. Uh, maybe it's her, her married name, but I, I would assume. Well, no, wait, her name Kirsten is even spelled with. Right, Kirsten Nielsen. This is like somebody named Seamus O'Reilly being like, ne- "Never heard of Ireland, never." You know, it's like, wait a second. I'm pretty sure you know what's going on in Ireland, Seamus O'Reilly, and I think Kirsten Nielsen should probably know that Norway is a mostly now. Am I am I mixing together the various Nordic countries here at some level? Perhaps Kirsten's heritage is entirely Danish, and I'm not trying to. I could do it. In pre- my, the only thing I can do, I can't do the Swedish or the Danish accents. You know, it sounds all like the Swedish fish. I cannot do an actual impersonation of it. But that was not her. I'm going to say that was not her most stellar moment today. Given a given a no on that one, I, I think you should know that one, right? It's like it, can you everywhere is Asia uh, is China primarily an Asian Asian country. The answer to that is yes, right? You need to not think about that one. China is a predominantly Asian country. Norway is a predominantly Caucasian country. These are things that folks just generally know. But I think she just was, I don't know. It's not even that she got didn't get the answer, just that her name is Kirsten Nielsen, you know? I mean, I feel like she's probably a relative of, uh, you know, Leif Erikson or something. So you would think she would know, but I digress. Uh, Randall in Mobile, Alabama. Randall, good to have you. Hi. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, you just can't give these people anything, though. She would have said, actually come out and said white people. That's the only thing that you would have seen on CNN and MSNBC is, oh, she admitted that it was all about white people. I mean, it's hilarious. They but, would have um, twisted her words, but I don't think that she, or they would have used it for their own purposes. But I don't think that you can get away with, <laughs> I think it would have been better if she was like, yeah, it's a predominantly white country. But, yeah. As long as she didn't say the words, it would be okay. But but I had a different point. Um, you know, you were talking about the shutdown and different things you could do if you had to shut down the government. And and, and you know, you were talking about you know, you know non essential non essential things that could get you know cut during the shutdown. And you know, every department would have to uh, kind of come up with their own things to to, to shut down. And I, I think I could think of one thing in the uh, Department of Justice. 
that is completely non-essential, and that is the Mueller investigation. I think it would be wonderful if they could, uh, you know, put a hold or just shut down the, the whole Mueller investigation and call it non-essential and blame Democrats for it. Well, I have to wonder, you know, one of the reasons that people say don't shut down, and you'll hear conservatives say this, too, they'll say don't shut down the Mueller investigation, and it's because, oh, the political backlash would be so much. And I just sit there and think to myself, well, if the Democrats were to win the uh, control of the House, for example, they're going to try to impeach the president, right? They're never going to remove him from office, oh. but they're going to try to go for impeachment proceedings, for sure. Oh, that's the whole point. Yeah, and, that's the whole point. And so then it just turns into, are you helping them possibly win the House so they can do the impeachment proceedings if you were to stop the Mueller probe because you'd have people who would all be like, it's a constitutional crisis, even though, how is it a constitutional crisis? Because I said so. I mean, they're not going to have... <laughs> much more in the way of information, but that's that's the way that will play out, well, I think. And we know I'm usually right, so. I just think it would be hilarious to, uh, you know, to say, well, there's, you know, there's a huge waste of money. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think it's probably in the millions of dollars, so, you know, by by federal government terms, that's not even a rounding error. No, no one pays much attention to it, but I hear you. I wish they could shut it down, too. Randall, thank you for calling in from Mobile, Alabama. Uh, I... I had a friend who lived in Alabama for years, but he said Mobile was kind of an undiscovered gem. He really liked it. Uh, I've never been down there. I want to talk to you about this judicial maneuvering where the White House is looking to have the Supreme Court weigh in on the DACA decision. Uh, instead of having this go through the circuit court procedure, they're just going to go straight to, the, straight to the big nine in the Supreme Court. So maybe we'll talk a bit about that and then some other things. Oh, yeah, Trump's health. Oh, man, we're going to have some fun with that one. After reading all these stories about, do you realize how many cheeseburgers he eats? I mean, it's just ghastly. Uh, turns out Trump's in good shape. He's fine. He's even better than fine. A lot of media folks in the room are just bitter that Trump's diet and uh, and habits seem to be doing just fine for him. We'll get into that and, uh, and so much more. 844-900-BUCK. Light up those lines. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. Madam Secretary, you are in the room. You're under oath. Did President Trump use this word or a substantially similar word to describe certain countries? I did not hear that word used, no, sir. I'm not, that's not a question. Did he use anything similar to that describing certain countries? The conversation was very impassioned. I don't uh, dispute that the president was using tough language. Others in the room were also using tough language. Was the cons- if I could, the concept, I believe, in which uh, this came up was the concept that the president would like to move to a merit-based system. He would like to not and no longer look at quotas and, and for countries. Did he use what would be considered vulgar language referring to certain countries? Uh, the president used tough language in general, as did other uh, congressmen in the room. Did the president refer to a place where human, human waste and also... A hole in the ground could be the president 
this is what he's wasting the American people's time with. Can you give me some specifics on the word that was used? What was the word? Let's get into the word. We This has been reported. I've never seen as much cursing in a 24-hour period on any network, and that includes HBO. And I, I watch some salty stuff on some of those paid channels. Not like that stuff, but I mean, you know, some of these shows, Game of Thrones and everything else, they got a lot of, well, they get a lot of everything on that one, but there's a lot of cursing. CNN was just filled with profanity because, oh, it's so terrible what the president did. Is the president, is the president, did, did he, excuse me, little lady, answer the question. Uh, who cares, right? But they care a lot because the whole purpose here is to talk about whether Trump is a, a racist or not. And that's their whole game. It's not about vulgarity. It's about trying to find a way to continue talking about the subject matter because they've already framed this as an issue of the president's racism. But this, I'm hoping, won't distract the American people too much. The media loves this. Most most of the media won't distract the American people too much from a couple of things happening right now in immigration that really do matter. One is the White House deciding to challenge the stay. And this is now we get into the legalese here and it can be a little convoluted. But remember, we talked about on this show that a judge in California ruled against the Trump administration's decision not to continue to implement the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. That program was only implemented under the idea that it was discretion of the executive branch. There was no congressional authorization or legislation for it. So it was just the president's call, so to speak, when it was Obama. And so Obama then made that call. Now, I disagree with what he did, but nonetheless, and I and I don't think it is actually within the president's authority, but this president came along and said, I'm not going to continue doing what my predecessor did based on presidential executive branch discretion. And this judge is like, no, you have to do it. No. And he's effectively overruling the president on a president and an issue of presidential prerogative. So now it's going to make its way up to the Supreme Court. And just as we saw with the travel ban, which the Supreme Court already allowed to go into effect in advance of a formal decision, because that's their way of saying, hey, we're probably going to rule with the government on this one, by the way. They want the same thing on this. And I would note that all these analysts and, you know, they'll put like Tubin on CNN, all these people, and they'll be saying, oh, the president, he's terrible and he doesn't understand the Constitution. And they're all going to be wrong on this one. But they won't. It doesn't matter because they're just trying to please an audience. They're not trying to provide them with information or facts or the truth. They just want they want everybody at home watching CNN to go. Oh, you know, I love so much trashing of Trump more and more and more. Uh, so that's one part of this. The judicial challenge making its way up to the Supreme Court going to be a victory for Trump. And it just goes to show you there's a there is a never Trump judiciary out there. This is a real issue. There are judges who view themselves as part of the hashtag resistance. Okay, that's one thing that's happening in immigration that matters, right? More than Leahy's questioning of uh, of Kirsten Nielsen or what he was trying to get at with that questioning. The other, and this just broke as we went on as we uh, went on air here, has to do with uh, DHS asking federal prosecutors that they can large, quote, criminal charges against sanctuary cities that refuse to cooperate with federal deportation efforts. And the Department of Justice is reviewing what avenues may be available, according to uh, Nielsen. I'm sorry, this was from the judiciary hearing earlier today. 
it broke with me because I just saw it before we came on air. Now, this is where there's a difference between CNN and CNN watchers and what I do here, because I will tell you that there probably isn't. Doesn't mean they shouldn't look into it, and it doesn't mean that I don't agree with the ethics and the obligations that local law enforcement, state law enforcement should have to help their federal counterparts in immigration enforcement. Uh, But I don't think, unless they're going to start charging whole jurisdiction. No, look, I'm not a lawyer, although I do a pretty good impression of one on radio. Uh, But unless they're going to charge jurisdiction, like they're going to say, L.A., Los Angeles, you are effectively a criminal conspiracy for the harboring of illegal aliens, which I think is an accurate description of the Los Angeles city government. But if unless they're going to take that route, I don't know how they would bring charges against people or against sanctuary jurisdictions of a criminal nature, because this is where you get into the difference between uh, notification and I've I've actually spent a lot of time digging into this. So if you want, maybe this is too in the weeds and maybe now I'm like, hey, is anyone with me? And I'm looking around and there's just a lot of weeds blowing and there's no one here with me because you're like, Buck, this is you're too deep in them. But the way it works is that with local law enforcement, there's a federal law on the books right now passed by Congress that says you have to let us know if you have somebody in custody who is an illegal. Right. So if you're holding an illegal, you have to let us know. Then there comes the issue of a detainer request. A detainer request is when Immigrations and Customs Enforcement says, hey, Los An- let's speed up on Los Angeles for a second, although I did have a great weekend there recently. Uh, hey, Los Angeles, you have so-and-so. You have, uh, you know, uh, Luck Bexton in, in custody, and he's an illegal. And we would like you to hold on to him. And Los Angeles says, no, we don't have any need to hold him, so we're going to let him go. That's where you get a big disconnect on federal versus local and state. That's a big sanctuary city issue. Because what happens is sanctuary cities will have a guy and Immigrations and Customs, I'm sorry, yeah, they'll they'll have the guy and Immigration and Customs Enforcement will say, hey, we got to deport that guy. He's a bad dude for X, Y, or Z reason. And Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, they'll say, nah, sorry. He's out there in general, you know, on, on the street doing whatever he wants again. Sorry, couldn't hold him for you, bro. I don't know if you're going to be able to bring criminal charges for that because now you're now you would be forcing federal. It's never been tested in the course before, so I don't know. But I'm just I don't expect that to work necessarily if they violate the notification because that is a statute then I think you can probably pull back funding from those sanctuary cities, law enforcement funding, although that's being challenged as well in court, right? There's a lot of, a lot of lawyer stuff going on here. Uh, but at least the administration is trying, and they're making a point with all this too. Whether they win or not in the, on the specifics, they're trying to say sanctuary cities are assisting in the violation of federal law. And you want to talk about complicity, to borrow a word from Senator Booker earlier in the show, Sanctuary cities are explicitly complicit in the violation of federal law when it comes to immigration. And they do it not just in systematic fashion, but they they love it. They brag about it. They think it makes them better jurisdictions. And it is now a, a, a political center of gravity around the issue of legal immigration in 
pretty much every large American city right now. I mentioned a bunch of them before, but uh, they're all sanctuary cities. And it's never going to change anytime soon because the illegal populations in those cities and families that include legal people, but, you know, the illegal populations are so large that no local government official will be able to change his tune on this stuff without immediately getting, uh, I don't even think they wait for the next election. You're talking about recall time here, right? You're the mayor, you're the mayor of LA and you're like, you know what, we're going to, we're going to back off sanctuary city stuff. I think Miami might have agreed to up its cooperation with the federal government on this a little bit a while ago, but that was when they were threatening lawsuits and, and the funding issue came up. So I don't know where that stands right now. I'd have to check into it, but this is uh, those are two immigration things that are important. All right. Uh, we're going to get into the White House doctor situation coming up here in a little bit. Cause it was just it was much better TV than you'd think. This should be pretty boring, right? President's in great health. Everything's cool. Wasn't boring for the media. Like, Good heavens, sir. What do you mean? He eats so many cheeseburgers. They're very upset. When I was at Dartmouth, they told me if we ate so many cheeseburgers, we'd get heart disease. This is ridiculous. Trump's in excellent health. I don't know why these Dartmouth people have pseudo-English accents, but they do. That's right, Dartmouth. Deal with it. Uh, 844-900-2825. If you want to call them, we've got some lines lit. Uh, we got a space for one or two more. 844-900-BUCK. Uh, back with the White House, Doc, and so much more. We haven't played two yet, huh? Play two. Sadly, I think it's really simple. I think Democrats don't want to see this president be successful. Uh, I think that he has had a huge year of 2017, one of the best first years of any president that we've seen, uh, certainly with the massive legislation passed, with the tax cuts, the economy is booming, ISIS is in retreat. I mean, you have win after win after win with this president, and I don't think they want to hand him another one. The problem is what they're doing is they're penalizing the country, and that's a really, really sad thing. I like fired up Sarah Sanders. I like it. She's right, by the way. Uh, the more successful Trump is, the more they hate him, which is unfortunate for the country, but true. Uh, let's get into some calls here before. I, I almost want to jump right into it now, but I want to I hold it for the top of the next hour because I just saw CNN, lower third, the banner they run at the bottom of the screen, uh, President Trump uh, considered quote, in the overweight range by his doctor. I'm like, are they, re- are they really body shaming Trump? Is that what's happening now? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Well, President Trump needs to be doing some CrossFit. This is ridiculous, you know? Gosh. It's just, there's, there's nothing about Trump that is off limits from their hatred. You know, they hate his eating habits. Although I will admit, ordering steak well done is only, this is for barbarians. We don't do this, right? But, no one's perfect, so I give Trump a pass on that one, although I do make fun of it sometimes. You do not order steak well done, folks, okay? Unless you literally don't trust the kitchen it's coming out of, yeah, then then char the crap out of it so that it's safe to eat. Uh, but there's nothing about Trump that is beyond their hatred and their criticism, nothing at all. Uh, all right, let's get Ken in Mansfield, Ohio. What's up, Ken? Good evening, Buck. Uh, hey, Ken. I was, um... I'm listening to what you had to say about the problems that we have, and, if we, and sometimes we do one solution, then that takes care of several problems.
problems. You see, we have a maximum impact between elections, and that is by sending a letter. And if just a few thousand would send letters, it doesn't have to be millions. And it makes a tremendous, I understand, an impact down in uh, the swamp there. Without a wall, and then... The, Are we talking like old school letters, like handwritten? We have a wall. And we like old cheerleading, you know, get enough people. We must have a wall. And when you have a wall, then uh, we have some success in taking care of all those people running across the border. So and so maybe they could get Israel, an Israeli, come up to Congress and ask him if they're better off with a wall in Israel. Ken, I respect your passion. Thank you very much for the call, my friend. Uh, Pat in Wichita, Kansas. What's up, Pat? Pat, going once. Going twice on Pat. Oh, there we go. Hey, Pat. Yeah, no? Can you hear me now, Buck? Yes, sir. You are on. Okay. I was wondering why Trump's even negotiating with the Democrats on DACA, because can't they just pass that with an appropriations bill without a filibuster? Uh, well, no, there's a, there must be the threat of the filibuster, right? Because And then I think you also got to look at whether Republicans are going to hold the line on this and, and keep ranks, too. I do worry sometimes that you can't really uh, you can't really trust them on this one. But, no, I mean, they're— I, I just found— I just thought Trump had a deal with his pocket when he walked into that meeting with the Democrats the first time. So, uh, no, I mean, I, I, look, I don't think there's going to be a shutdown. I, I think it's unlikely uh, that you will see that happen. And and the most likely scenario, if I had to bet, is that they just push the debt ceiling up, and everyone's like, "Oh, we tried. We're you know we're tough." Nothing happens though. You know. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah, they could fill it. They can filibuster it. So that's that's why, and that's how they force the shutdown because the spending automatically expires. The spending is time based, as you know. The government only has funding up to a certain date, and then beyond that, it, it doesn't matter that you know you, you have the majority. If you get delayed beyond then, uh, the the government shuts down. But again, a shutdown. It's happened. I forget how many dozens of times in the past. But a shutdown is not some cataclysm. We'd all be okay. And I think if Republicans set it up properly, they could win the public fight. It's just a, a mechanism to have a debate over a policy uh, agenda. That's really what a shutdown turns into. They're not going to keep it shut down forever. All right, Pat, thank you for calling in. Good to talk to you. So what else did we have here? Um, oh, one thing I meant to throw in before, by the way, got to Senator Rand Paul, also Dr. Rand Paul, who I have to say is remarkable, doesn't get really talked about enough. Guy had a really tough 12 months. I, I mean, that. he was uh, at the baseball diamond where there was the attempted mass assassination of conservative members of Congress by that Bernie Sanders supporting lunatic guy. And then you also had Rand Paul attacked on his front lawn and, and beaten up really badly. I forget what the I mean, I didn't read about the full extent of the injuries. I just know that it was he was apparently in tremendous pain. So anyway, Senator Rand Paul's had a tough Tough go, but he had this to say, and I think this is worth people knowing. While everyone's pushing this storyline about Trump is so racist, Trump's so awful, and I shouldn't say everybody, but you know, CNN, the liberal media, and all that. Here's what Rand Paul said about what Trump, what Trump did before it was a political issue. 
I asked for donations before I went on the trip, and one of them was to businessman Donald J. Trump, who uh, not only helped with the trip to Haiti, but also helped with a previous trip that we took to Central America. Now, I know people who want to criticize Trump anyway will say, you know, how much money did he really give, and he's really rich, it doesn't make a difference, but hey, he gave stuff. A lot of other people could have and didn't. And if he were so disdainful of, of Haiti, for example, as a country, I find it hard to believe that he would, of his own volition, give money to help out the the Haitian people. And I think it's worth bringing to public's attention here that the president, uh, current president, before he was a president, did some things that people don't really talk about now, but that are not in any way in line with what you were hearing, for example, from Cory Booker at the start of the show uh, when he was talking about white supremacist murderers and then Donald Trump in the Oval Office and what he was saying. It was a a breathtakingly dishonest and destructive little monologue there from Senator Booker, but I guess we should not be surprised. All right, the president's health and the media frenzy around it. That's up next. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. So what kind of shape is the president in health-wise? I don't mean like how many push-ups he can do. Although people used to say that George W. Bush could run like multiple six-minute miles. I'm a, I find that hard to believe, all right? I met the guy, talked to him for a while. That's pretty fast. But here's what we know about President Trump as of today based on his physical. Quote, President Trump performed exceedingly well on a surprise cognitive uh, screening test administered last week, his doctor said. Uh, Navy doctor Ronnie Jackson, who administered President Trump's first presidential physical last week, said Trump received a perfect score. He gets the best scores on a test designed to detect early signs of memory loss and other mild cognitive impairment. He also reported the six foot three president weighed in at two hundred and thirty nine pounds Three pounds heavier than he was in September. Hey, he's under a lot of stress, everybody. They probably got a little mac and cheese in the in the White House, you know, too, for late nights. Uh, anyway, gained three pounds. That's not bad for that job. And the last time Trump uh, revealed his weight to the public. Oh, here we go. This is what you get from the, from the Times here. That number puts Trump on the cusp, but just under the obesity mark. Ooh. It's like, first of all, they need to, they need to chill. The, the whole BMI thing... Those tests, they've showed that, you know, especially he's an older guy. And based on that test, something like 30 or 40 percent of the country is obese, right? If you've got like a little bit of a pot belly for a guy listening to this, technically they'd probably put you there. And it's like, yeah, it's called America, you commies over at the Times. Uh, but what else did I have on this? Oh, yeah, that's right. The journalists were freaking out about it. Elaborated layman's terms as possible, and you've been doing a great job at that. Uh, uh, what you ruled out in these cognitive tests, uh, you know, there have been reports that the president has forgotten names, that right. he's repeating himself. Are you yeah. ruling out uh, things like early onset Alzheimer's? Are you looking at dementia like symptoms? Just to make sure we we're clear on this, uh, when you analyze his cognitive ability or his neurological functions, that is not the same thing as a psychiatric exam. Been some questions as part of your exam. I'm wondering if you talked to the president about this, about the president's mental fitness. He has pushed back on that, calling him right. a staple genius. Can you assess? Do you believe he is fit for duty? Absolutely, he's fit for duty. I think he will remain fit for duty for the remainder of this term. I mean, 
He sounds like a stable genius to me based on what his doctor's saying. <laughs> the press is so upset about this. Like, excuse, excuse me, could you please elaborate on, I mean, are the, are the synapses all firing with a functionality that would be equivalent to, say, a 35-year-old triathlete? Or, you know, they really want specificity here. I mean, they want to know. Can, we, can you give us something? Are, are you telling us there's a chance that the president is deranged? mentally deficient, unable to, whatever it is, right? They're looking so hard for it, and they can't find it. They keep asking. So wait, hold on a second. So you're telling me if I ask you, is the president, in fact, uh, not of sound mind, uh, you're saying he he is a stable genius? The doc's like, yeah, pretty much. I think they also said that he could live to 200 or something. I mean, that's a joke, obviously, right? Oh, he's lying again. The president will live to 200. No, but I, I think that's, I think that was in there somewhere as well. I've seen all these clips in recent weeks of psychiatrists going on TV and saying, oh, you know, I think the president may be out of his mind. Okay, well, now we have an actual doctor doing an actual exam. And we'll talk to Dan Bongino in just a moment here about the doc. He knows the doc. Uh, We'll talk about that. But the exam results come out and the media doesn't like it. There'll be no apology for those stories. I should know. There'll be no, you know, maybe we should have been running around saying the president has dementia, which is what they were more or less saying for a while. That was the storyline, right? The 25th Amendment has been talked about so often that people actually know what it is now. Let's be honest. How many people knew what the 25th Amendment was before? And I'm not I'm not casting stones on that one because that's getting up there in amendments, right? You got to know that you got to know the first 10. And then after that, you know, Google, right? But 25th Amendment, everyone knows what that one is now because that's what you had a lot of never Trumpers saying they were going to use to get Trump out of office. But that looks like that's going to be harder now. Here's a prediction. Even though you just had this cognitive test, which this, which a, an MD and a respected MD uh, has said Trump passed with, with flying colors, give it a few months, Trump will say something or tweet something, and they'll be saying, oh, my gosh, he's crazy. We have to use the 25th Amendment. They'll, they'll do it again. It will happen. Just give it some time. They'll, they'll hope that people forget about this because that's the way they play the game. Uh but sometimes we get a little bit of a little bit of Trump fighting back, and that can be kind of fun. You might have heard one of the questions there from CNN's uh, chief White House pundit, Jim Acosta. And Trump got to speak to Acosta today. Here's how, here's how it went. We've been talking uh, a little bit about the economies and our economy, and as the president uh, has already said and has said again and will say again, uh, we have broken a lot of records. We're breaking another one today. The stock market is way up. Jobs are back. Black unemployment is the best it's ever been in recorded history. Uh, It's been fantastic, and uh, it's the best number we've had with respect to black uh, unemployment. Uh, We've never seen anything even close, so we're very honored by that. And our country is doing very well. Economically, we've never had anything like it. I don't believe we've ever been in a position, and the president was so saying uh, we've never been in a position like we have. Uh, Many countries and many companies are moving back from other countries where they left the United States and they're now moving back into the United States. Uh, We had some big announcement recently with Chrysler going back to Michigan. We had Toyota coming in and it's going to build a massive plant. We have many, many companies coming in and they're building in the United States and that means jobs. So uh, I appreciate all the nice things you've said and I look forward to our luncheon. I look forward to our discussions and 
with that, uh, I just want to thank everybody for being here. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I want them to come in from everywhere. Everywhere. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everyone. I know you listen to a lot of Trump just saying what he did there. It's so awesome. But you had Acosta there, kept pushing the question about Norway and, and the, you know, oh, Norway, racism, etc. And, and I just like Trump just said out, <laughs> which is great. So I hope it was worth it for that little that that short exchange. Oh, you got to hear a nice recitation from the president himself of all the things that's going right in the country. Uh, I, I haven't mentioned to you Bannon's going to get subpoenaed to go speak to the Mueller probe. I, I, this is going to be it's going to be a, a nothing burger, but a lot of White House. I mean, not White House. Uh, CNN folks are running around like thinking that's a big deal. So just FYI, I'm aware of it. It's going to be a nothing burger. Bannon's got nothing to say about this. He came on very late in the game, and there's no collusion. And what, what the heck are they going to ask Bannon? I do think Bannon's savvy enough to avoid the perjury trap, though, so that's a good thing. Um, and uh, we got uh, our buddy Dan Bongino joining us. He's a former Secret Service agent and also uh, hosts a podcast, and uh, you see him a lot on Fox. He's going to be joining us here in just a few minutes to tell us a bit more about the president's health uh, which we know is very good now, but the media seems to not believe it. And uh, we'll talk about Russia stuff, too. So stay right there. All right, team, we're very pleased to be joined by the one and only Dan Bongino now. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He's a former Secret Service agent. You guys see him on Fox News all the time. He's the host of the Dan Bongino Show, which is available on iTunes and is doing very well. And he's a great guy. We're happy to have him on. Dan, thanks for calling in. Always good to talk to you, Buck. Thanks for having me. So the president, let's just start with this. The, the media is trying to analyze an actual doctor talking about the president's actual health, and they seem kind of upset <laughs> by this, Dan. What's going on? <laughs> Dude, they're like so disappointed. And by the way, let me just preface this. I am not a name dropper. You've known me a long time. I am as humble a cat as you're ever going to meet, right? But I know Dr. Ronnie Jackson very well from my time in the Secret Service. Personally, we spent a lot of time together in a lot of foreign countries. And let me tell you something. If Dr. Ronnie Jackson tells you something about the president's health in a public statement, take that check to the bank and cash it. Because this is one of the most dedicated, loyal, and honest public servants you're ever going to meet. And for those of you out there saying, oh, well, the doctor, Trump probably told him to say that. Uh, he worked for Obama, Ronnie, for like five, six years when I was there. So don't give me that crap, all right? This guy is, is unbelievable. And you see the looks on their faces, Buck? They were almost disappointed that the doc gets up there and goes, yeah, his blood pressure is 122 over 75. He scored a perfect score on the mental health. The media's like, oh. Man, this sucks. I was worried really some. I was this guy was going to be a mental case. I'm concerned that some of the the guys in the White House press corps, guys and gals, were going to have a coronary right there because you had the White House doctors say that Trump might live to be 200. <laughs> I, I tweeted out afterwards that after that press conference, I was more worried about the mental health of the representatives in the media than I am about Trump. I mean. The question, they seem so disappointed that I, I spent a lot of time around the media, my prior line of work in the White House press pool. And, you know, there's some very good people there. I don't mean to impute all of them, but it's not what I would consider like a CrossFit crowd. 
And I think it drives them crazy that the president can go out and eat McDonald's and is the picture of health while they're probably eating kale smoothies and drinking kale smoothies. And some of them look like they're, you know, five minutes they're in God's waiting room right now. I mean, it really was pathetic. That was one of the worst press conferences, not by Ronnie, Dr. Ronnie, but by the media I've ever seen. It was embarrassing. I also thought it was uh, pretty astonishing to see some, including, I'm not going to name any names here, but some never-Trump conservatives out there on social media who were who were questioning that that's Trump's actual weight that was uh, on the you know on the doctor's files and and people were pointing out that he's quote borderline obese. I'm like whoa whoa whoa! Everyone needs to, now, now you're gonna buy, now they're gonna actually you have media figures Dan who want to body shame the president. Oh fuck! It's it's just you know the TDS the Trump derangement syndrome. It's worse than it. Bush was bad. You know BDS was awful, but TDS is geometrically worse. I mean, seriously, the guy, number one, he's like six foot three when you see him in person. He's just a big guy. And they seem genuinely disappointed that Jackson said that. But I'm telling you, and I mean it, I would never say this on your radio show or to you as a friend privately if I didn't mean it. I'm telling you, Dr. Ronnie Jackson is an honorable, dedicated man. He's a military man. If he told you that's what the medical report said, you can bet your kid's life on it. That's exactly what that medical report said. He would never sacrifice his credibility. And, and as Americans and just as human beings, always good to hear that the president of the United States and just Donald Trump, a family man, is in good health. I feel like this should be celebrated by everybody. But there's some in the media that were like, eh, a little disappointed. You know, Buck, you would think. I mean, I, I know me and you've known each other since Obama was in office. I never recall having a conversation with you privately on any of your radio programs ever where anybody would even allude to the fact that oh gosh obama's in good health what a bit i mean that's just insane it's just stupid and it really like i said it speaks more to the mental health of the media than it does to the president we're speaking to dan bongino who is a former secret service agent host of the dan bongino show which you can download on itunes uh and dan let's switch gears for a second to the whole uh russia trump collusion investigation situation I can't. I wish there was one really good pithy way to describe the like people call it the Mueller probe, Russia collusion, whatever. What's going on at the FBI, though? I mean, you were Secret Service. I know not FBI, but you obviously worked yeah. with a lot of those guys, know a lot of those guys. And yep. I just smell funky stuff. Yeah. Buck, I, I tell you, I have been all over this thing. I'm actually um, halfway done with an ebook we're putting together on it. And you're right, it is difficult to sum up because it's complicated. But the best kind of bullet point I can give to your audience to tell you, and I've got impeccable sourcing on this, how damaging this thing is, is it's not about the dossier. And it has almost nothing to do with Russia. This has everything to do with an Obama administration sting operation and entrapment operation being run against the Trump campaign. That's the headline of the story. And I'm telling you, I would not say this to your audience. This is not a local TV show. This is a national show. If I was not absolutely confident that that is what's going to come out in the wash after you see these OIG reports and all of this information come out in the Obama administration, those folks are going to skedaddle like cockroaches when the light goes on. They are in a world of trouble. Take it to the bank. I always think it's so important, Dan, to look back at all the information we have about specifically the, the FBI and, and the DOJ figures involved here and, you know, Strzok and Orr and, and uh, well, Mueller came along later and all this, but Comey and, and all these different figures. And keep in mind that 
they all assumed Hillary was going to win. So that really changes the calculation about how one at DOJ may have used discretion to, say, try to help the Hillary campaign a little bit. Because if Hillary had won and they had managed to get a little helpful information that was just damaging on Trump or his people, made them look foolish, and then it leaked out into the press, they would have been heroes for Hillary, who was going to be their boss, and nobody would have been the wiser. Yes. Yes, and people, exactly, you're right on that point. Everybody assumed Hillary was going to win. But people, fairly enough, have tweeted me and said over email, listen to my show, when I've covered this, they've said, I don't get it, though. Why entrap the Trump team uh, if, if nobody thought he was going to win? And the answer, when you look at the totality of the circumstances, is quite obvious. The Iran deal, Buck, drove everything. It also drove the... Obama administration to accommodate the Russians in ways that were highly unpalatable if they were to become public. Uranium One is part of that. They needed the Russians for the Iran deal. To placate the Russians, they allowed the Russians, a a stated goal, by the way, to control the world's uranium market for both economic and national security interests. Bottom line is this. That information is going to come out. The Obama administration's placating of the Russians needed to be hidden. The only way to hide it, if in the unlikely event Trump was elected, which they thought at the time, was to dirty up the Trump team, too, through these approaches that they kept making through Fusion GPS of people on their campaign. That's the scandal here laid out and quickly for you. Well, also, though, you know, when you, people talk about the why would and because that's a, that's a very fair point. It's a it's an important question to to address. If they were also sure that Hillary was going to win, why would they do anything? Uh, I would I would add that for people like Sally Yates, for example, at DOJ, who stayed on for a yeah. short while, as you know, after and for everyone listening, she yeah. was the acting attorney general who refused Trump's going to be seen as lawful order, actually, by the Supreme Court. Just give it some time. But for people like that, to the never Trump DOJers, if you will, oh, a 10 percent shot of a Trump presidency was something they couldn't abide. No, and Sally Yates and Bruce Orr at Justice at DOJ are intimately involved in this. The Yates role is clear as day. Yates understands that Mike Flynn, Trump's appointed national security advisor, knows about the spying that's been going on in the Trump team. They need Trump out. It's Sally Yates who initially hatches the idea of implicating Mike Flynn in a crime, and I'm using air quotes here because the Logan Act is what she proposes. The Logan Act is the jaywalking of federal crimes. It's never been successfully prosecuted. It's questionably even constitutional in the history of the Republic. So Sally Yates, in effect, makes up a crime to go and charge Mike Flynn with. I mean, it's a crime on the books, but nobody, it's, it's nonsensical. It's not even constitutional. No one's ever been successfully prosecuted with it because it's a joke. I mean, if that were the case, Jesse Jackson would be in jail for conducting foreign policy with North Korea. That's how Yates's role in this is. Uh, that's she initiates the whole idea of taking Flynn out through this Logan Act violation. And Bruce Orr, over at the Associate Deputy Attorney General over at Justice, wife is working for Fusion GPS as they're accumulating false Russian intelligence information, which is all propaganda on the Trump team, which is being fed to the FBI. I, I mean, I could give you a thousand angles on how the swamp combined its forces. And they, 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 I mean, the commitment to take this guy down through this entrapment scheme is devastating. You know, one, one quick thing on this, Buck. You know, the order here matters. 
You know, if you live in a gated community and you get robbed, you get burglarized, and you call the cops and the cops show up, great, that's how it works. But if you live in a gated community, the cops show up, and then an hour later you're burglarized, something, the order matters. Those events happened, right? All happened in both scenarios. The order makes a difference. That is the key to seeing the Trump sting operation by Obama for what it is. It's the fact that Obama people connected through Fusion GPS new people approaching the Trump team and trying to give them information. The Trump team wasn't seeking it out. Dan Bongino is the host of the Dan Bongino Show. It's up on iTunes. And uh, also, Dan, Twitter is... At D. Bongino. At D. Bongino, everybody. Dan, great to have you all, man. Come back soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Team, we're going to roll into a quick break. We'll be uh, right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. All right, everybody, there's some big stories in the legal world today have to do with our uh, criminal justice system. And we have Emily Campagno online to help us work through those. She is an attorney and legal analyst. You see her often on Fox News and here on this show, too. Emily, great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me, Buck. How are you? Good, good. So I saw this exchange uh, earlier today where uh, Christine Teigen, who is the wife of John Legend, she's also a celebrity in her own right, uh, offered to pay money. So John Legend, very famous musician. Christine Teigen is a uh, model. And she responded that when Michaela Maroney was facing a $100,000 fine if she spoke out against that USA Gymnastics uh, molester, Larry Nasser. that if she spoke out about what happened to her, she could find $100,000. Christine Teigen and John Legend said they would pay her fine, but what the heck is going on here with this whole Nasser case and the restrictions and everything else going on? Right. This case is, uh, it is agonizing, frankly, to listen to, And this week has been dedicated to victims' testimony in his sentencing trial. I listened to them this morning, and it was incredibly difficult to listen to. I I can't imagine what those girls have gone through. Now, in a nutshell, Larry Nasser, he was the USA Gymnastics team doctor. He was also the Michigan State University team doctor, um, and he was a practicing physician. So in those multiple capacities, what we know is that a minimum of 140 young girls some under the age of 10 at the time, have come forward with um, proven allegations of really, uh, really graphic sexual assault for years, systemic sexual assault. Now, he has pled guilty. Um, and, oh, when the, the feds caught him with almost 40,000 images of child pornography, by the way, on his university computer, um, so he, felt he pled guilty to federal counts relating to child pornography, and he was sentenced to 60 years in prison for that. But now he has pled guilty to 10 counts of first-degree sexual misconduct, and that is what he is, that's what we're in the middle of right now, is the sentencing for that. So this entire week was dedicated to 88 women's testimony, their victim statements of his horrific sex crimes against them. Note 
some one, at least one, for example, she committed suicide. So it's not her testifying. It's her mother. I mean, these, these stories are horrific. So now cut to what you just brought up, which is the fact that part of the coverage of this gained notoriety when these Olympian young women came forward and said, you know, yes, me too. I was sexually assaulted by him. And that's when the press kind of got wind of it in the terms of a larger coverage. Now, that's part of what the normal, quote unquote, victims have alleged is um, unnerving about this particular case is that it's only when those who had this larger voice came forward that then the extent of this trauma was brought up and it they have felt a measure of um you know, if I, if I were more famous, my voice would have been heard more clearly type thing, which is obviously a shame. But so this particular example, this is one of our, you know, beloved and um, famous team USA gym, gymnasts who it has come out was potentially now here's where the legality flows from. It's was she forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement? Did she do so under true um, you know, knowledge of all of the of the impact it would have. But essentially, for the over a million dollars that Team USA uh, settled with this physician, she had to sign a non-disclosure that she would say nothing. And if she broke that non-disclosure, she would be subject to a fine. So this is now Ms. Teagan coming forward and saying, you know what, I think this entire thing is a sham. I think, you know, now we're hearing a collective uh, clamor of we should do away with NDAs when it has to do with sexual assault victims. And therefore, for you to participate in this victim testimony phase right now, or for you to come forward, if you get fined, I'll pay it. I have to say, that's kind of amazing for a lot of people to hear that you could have criminal sexual misconduct that would be covered by an NDA. I, I would assume that, that that just wouldn't be enforceable, but it sounds like this was enforceable. You're absolutely right. Now, NDAs are only enforceable if they don't break the law. So it's kind of apples and oranges in this particular instance because that was dealing with a civil suit. That was dealing with a civil settlement. That wasn't a criminal charges that he was responding to for Team USA. Note, too, that in the court, the um, victims can absolutely testify anonymously there were more than a few victims that you could hear. Basically, when they introduce themselves, it's Jane Doe. All feed cuts out, and in any court document, it will be cited as Jane Doe. So, you know, she totally could have read a statement privately in court with no one knowing that it was her. And I think that's part of the confusion here. But the larger picture is definitely whether... Now we're hearing this movement, whether we want to keep that as a valid enforceable clause in their California law. Do we want that? Do we want that as a nation? You know, now as we're hearing that millions of our taxpayers' dollars are also being spent. So we are paying to silence victims. Every single person listening to this has paid to silence victims. Is that something that we want to keep enforceable on its face, even when it doesn't have to do with actual criminal charges, but in a civil settlement? We're speaking to Emily Campagno, who's a legal analyst, and you can read her latest at emilycampagno.com. Uh, one more, and we've only got a couple minutes here, Emily, but tell me just a bit about this story. Uh, it's just an, uh, kind of a crazy, unbelievable story. A submarine inventor who allegedly murdered a journalist on his submarine and, and chopped up her body or something? What happened? Right. This is, this is a, a really horrific case as well. Now, it arises out of Denmark. 
And this was a renowned journalist um, who was murdered. She, you know, had multiple degrees and had traveled and lived all around the world. Um, and it really brought to light, frankly, what female freelance or any, I should say, any freelance journalist, the kind of dangers they are subject to when they are chasing stories and putting themselves in potentially harm in, in harm's way. Now, Kim Wall was reported missing by her boyfriend, and then eventually her dismembered body was found. And, you know, at first, um, you know, Madsen claimed, oh, um, you know, she fell and hit her head and then slowly began to admit, yes, he dismembered her and dismembered her. And now the, the trial by jury is expected to begin on March. He was just indicted today. Now, essentially, you know, remember, this is Denmark, so there's no death penalty and a life sentence really averages out to about 14 years in prison. Um, he will be he was subject to a psychiatric evaluation. And if he is sentenced, he may be subject to uh, safe custody. But essentially, again, this is a horrific example of what these freelance journalists go through. And this submarine inventor, I mean, it was a horrific description of what the autopsy discovered of her, again, dismembered body. EmilyCampagno.com for more of Emily's analysis. And also, we're going to have you back to talk to us about Mindhunter, Emily, after you've seen it, all right? <laughs> yes, definitely. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Good to talk to you. And uh, team, we'll be right thank back. Thank you so much. Well, it's that time, everybody. Roll call. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. <laughs> Maybe I should not say what the announcer says, uh, what our voiceover says there. I'll find out a better way to introduce that. Hey, roll call. Let's play the roll call. But first time, I hope you like the new the new intro we've got going there. Like I said, we're going to be testing out all kinds of new fun stuff here in the Freedom Hut. It is part of our part of our. Uh, Mandate for 2018. Uh, have not forgotten about the commie bear promise. That's just, I, I have followed through on what was, I think, two years of saying eventually I'll do separate history shows. We finally got, maybe it was three years. Some of you listening are like, four years, Buck, four years. Uh, but I finally have started doing that. And the book will also happen. Oh, I haven't forgotten about that either. There will be a book at some point in the not too distant future. It's just, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and only so much Buck can do before he just needs to throw on some sweats and watch some Netflix and maybe eat some pad thai. That's my that's my guilty pleasure food, by the way. If I'm just like, you know what, I don't care, I just get a huge thing of pad thai. I don't know why, that's where I go. I mean, French fries, but that's – I feel like everybody eats French fries all the time. But when I'm, when I'm deciding that it's time to go with the elastic waistband, kick back, relax, and, you know, the good times roll – with Netflix, I, I do pad tie. So with uh, with that complete non sequitur thrown into the mix here, I think it's time to get into some Team Buck Speaks. And so with that, uh, here we go. We have Corinna. She writes in, love the Shields High podcast. I listen more than once to make sure I didn't miss anything. On a note, on another note, you haven't given us any updates on your adventures in slow cooking. Since you like the slow cooker, you should look into the Instapot. What takes all day in a slow cooker can take as little as twenty minutes in the Insta in the Instapot. Uh, okay, I, I'm familiar with a pressure cooker. Is that like a Instapot? I don't even know. And the answer is, I actually have stew meat, 
which doesn't sound awesome when you say it that way. Stew sounds great and meat sounds great, but stew meat doesn't really evoke all of the delicious flavors that one uh, might perhaps want. Uh, but I have that in my fridge right now because I'm planning on making beef stroganoff in the slow cooker this week. I meant to do it yesterday, got a little busy, had to run over to Fox a few times. And uh, Miss Molly doesn't like beef stroganoff, so I am making it in her absence so that I can eat it without her saying, ew, that's gross, why are you eating that? Because uh, I like it. I like I like stroganoff. So there is that. And if I can get around to it, I'll do probably... The best thing I've made in the slow cooker was the short ribs, which were amazing. And then probably my next favorite thing all time would be a... It's kind of a spicy white chicken and sweet potato or white sweet potato and chicken stew uh, or white bean and chicken sweet potato. I forget what it was. It was amazing, though, and it was spicy. So that's what I got there. Uh, Kirk. Hey, here we go, Kirk. Quite a message here. After listening to your first two Shields High podcasts, I now know why you prefer to focus on Crescent versus Cross rather than intramural debates among Christian denominations. Your historical deep dives put things in the proper perspective as Christianity and Western civilization were literally at stake. It puts a new lens on today's similar battles with Islamic terrorism and our battle as Christians. It also puts Trump tweets in their proper perspective as well. I was aware of the Crusades and the Battle of Lepanto, but had no idea of the consistent cross versus crescent struggle over the past 2,000 years. Thank you for the history lesson, Kirk from Texas. Well, Kirk, thank you for the kind message. Fall of Constantinople 1453 is going to be this Monday's Shields High episode. And I think a lot of you are probably like, really? Is that this is I think of the topics, I can't tell you which one will be the best podcast yet because I haven't done it. Right. And sometimes it just the stuff flows and, and it all comes together. So we'll have to see. But as subject matter, the fall of Constantinople is one of the most important battles in in history. I can tell you that the battle itself may not be quite in the in the line of, say, uh, you know, Midway and Thermopylae and Waterloo in, in terms of the epic nature of the on the battlefield all at once, one day deciding at all situation. But. The Ottomans seizing Constantinople, turning it into Istanbul, changed the world forever. And from the perspective of Christendom in the West, was an enormous, uh, an enormous threat and led to many more very serious challenges, not just to Western hegemony, but to the existence of Christendom and Western civilization. So the fall of Constantinople was a very big deal. And it will be the podcast for this coming Monday, 1453, the fall of Constantinople. Uh, I think people don't even realize that Constantinople represented the, by far, most important uh, cultural, economic, and strategic center of Christianity in the world in the 15th century. Nothing else was was even even close. Uh, So... It was as a location for holding back the Islamic conquest. It was number one. You know, there were other cities that were very beautiful, Italian cities and everything else. But the the importance of Constantinople in being the bulwark of Christendom against uh, against the Islamic conquest 
well, it was the single mo- it was number one, and then it fell, and then you had invasions twice to the gates of Vienna. Uh, you had the effort to annihilate the combined fleets of European states at Lepanto, the effort to use Malta as a forward operating base for the invasion of Italy and mainland and all the rest of mainland Europe. So 1453 leads into all of that. That's why it's so important. And that's, I think, a very for Monday. You'll see it'll be, I think, a really good show. And uh, if you haven't already, please do subscribe the uh, the folks here, they know that I'm taking a lot of time on the weekends to do this. And, you know, I could be working on some things here or there, but they've said, Buck, we want you to do this history podcast. But every single download, uh, each one of you that listens, that downloads is a vote in favor of more history podcasts. So and we and if you literally not to be like big brother here, but if you're like, oh, what, Buck, you know, I'm sure plenty of people are downloading it. Maybe I'll get to it at some point. No, no, no. Every download counts. Every download matters. I would also throw in there uh, that for the sponsors of this show, uh, each one of you who uses one of those promo codes when I talk about the live reads and you actually get one of the products, I've got great sponsors on the show, a lot of veteran-owned companies that advertise on this show as well. Uh, That really helps. Um, This is all free content that we give to all of you, and I'm uh, blessed and very fortunate to have such a wonderful audience and, and the willingness that you have to spend time here with me in the hut is is incredible but for those of you who can uh buying some of the products that we talk about here on the show that is look that's what keeps it all going here so each time you do that i just want to let you know each time you type in one of the promo codes for one of our sponsors you are also putting a big big vote uh, up on the board for team bucket for what we're doing in the freedom hut so that's my my plea for freedom hut capitalism my friends uh, oh, I've gotten a little distracted from the uh, the notes here uh, from roll call, but I'll get back into it. Darby in Texas. Hey, brother. We know Darby. Darby calls in sometimes. Uh, just finished the podcast from Friday night. Excellent as usual. Wanted to shoot a quick note to let you know that I'm proud to see you doing so well. You deserve it, buddy. Best wishes to you and Miss Molly. Keep doing what you do. Well, Darby, you're a very kind man. Thank you so much. And uh, very, I really appreciate the note. I would just say that I promise I'm actually just reading these in order as they come into the uh, inbox. Um, this is not supposed to be just one long promo for the for the history podcast Shields Hive, but I'm getting there, there are more the inbox is just full of messages on that. And I love them. I'm not that's not a in any way a, a critique. I just that's why I'm reading some. That's what we're getting in the inbox right now. Uh, and that's fantastic. And I really do appreciate it. So that's going to be it for a roll call today. I know I didn't get to very many. I promise I'll get to more. Uh, tomorrow or certainly later on in the week. Uh, I know we've got State of the Union coming up. It's going to be quite a month for politics here. We've got a few days for the uh, for the government shutdown to happen or not. So we're going to be busy here in the hut, my friends. Uh, please do check out what we're doing on Facebook. You go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, and you can send me messages there. As you, as you can tell, I do read them. I respond when I can. I read them on air when I can. Uh, also the Shield High podcast is on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and the iHeart app. So just sh- uh, search Shield High and you'll be able to find it. And uh, also check out BuckSexon.com. Till tomorrow, my friends, Shield High.